compelled them to come. And then he made this statement. He said, for I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste of my dinner. You see, a gracious offer was extended to a group of people and they spurned the invitation. And so a new invitation was given to another group of people who didn't deserve it. Now, what's the point of that parable? Who were the people who were originally invited and spurned the invitation? It was Israel. And who are the poor and the crippled and the the blind and the lame? Who are the people way out in the highways and the hedges who didn't deserve to come, who got an invitation? It was the Gentiles. And Jesus told many parables like that. He told the parable of the vineyard and the vine uh, growers and how the vineyard was taken away from them and given to others. But you know, the question that's never answered in any of those parables is, well, what about Israel? It's been taken away from Israel. Now what about Israel? Where do they stand? And that's the question that Paul raises in Romans chapter 11. And he asked the question in verse 1, and he asked it again in verse 11. He asked it in verse 1 by saying, I say then, God has not rejected His people, has He? And the answer is, may it never be. No way. And then in verses 1 through 10, he shows how Israel's rejection is only partial. God has always had his, re- his remnant of believing Israelites through all the ages. And then he asks the question again in verse 11, and he goes on to answer it, no way. And then he explains in verses 11 through the end of the chapter how that Israel's rejection is only temporary. There is going to come a time of great faith in Israel. And we began to look at this last time and we outlined it with five points. We saw God's purpose, God's pattern, God's promise, God's perspective, and God's praise. First of all, God's purpose we saw in verses 11 to 15. God's purpose in setting Israel aside is not to finally and totally and forever reject them. There's a threefold purpose you'll find here. That purpose is Gentile salvation. Because Israel rejected, we got the invitation. We got invited to the banquet. Second is Jewish jealousy. Even while God reaches out to us, the Gentiles, He's trying to draw the Jews into jealousy to come to Him. And then the third is world blessing in verse 12. And then the second point is God's pattern in verses 16 to 22. And again, we saw this last time. Paul paints a picture to illustrate God's master plan of redemption. And it's a picture of an olive tree. The roots of the olive tree are Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. The branches of the olive tree is Israel. And he says, since the roots are holy, the branches are holy. Since the roots have been set apart unto God, the branches are set apart unto God. That's the picture of the olive tree. And then he goes on to say, some of the branches in the olive tree were broken off and a wild olive was grafted into that cultivated olive tree. And that wild olive branch is the Gentiles. That's us. Because Israel is taken out of the place of privilege, we the Gentiles have been brought into that place of privilege. And he says, because that's true of us, we need two attitudes. One in verse 18 is humility. Don't be arrogant. And the second is, in verses 20 and 21, fear. Realize that if, you, if, if the real branches were broken off, then you could be broken off as well. 
Which brings us to the third point, and that is God's promise in verses 23 to 27. Notice verse 23. And they also, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. Now that's a promise. If Israel as a nation turns from its unbelief, Paul says, they will be grafted back in. And then he develops this idea in three steps. The first step he points out is that it's possible. Notice the end of verse 23. For God is able to graft them in again. As unthinkable as it is with Israel in their their present spiritual condition, and with a lot of people saying today that Israel has been written off, Paul says don't write them off because it's possible. God is able to graft them back in. So first of all, it's possible. Then secondly, he tells us it's easy. Verse 24. For if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree and were grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more shall these who are the natural branches be grafted into their own olive tree? You see, it's contrary to nature for a wild olive branch to be grafted into a cultivated tree. So what he's saying is, we the Gentiles are contrary to nature being in the place of privilege. If God can do that, then He can certainly take the natural branches and graft them back in again. And so He says, it's possible, God is able. It's easy because it's the natural thing to have happen. And then thirdly, He says, it's coming. Verse 25, For I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery, lest you be wise in your own estimation that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, and thus all Israel will be saved. And at last, Paul gets to make the statement that his heart has been desiring to say, God is going to restore Israel. All Israel will be saved. Now, many theologians have had a difficult time digesting that statement. And many have made efforts to water down what this says in verse 25. The reformers like John Calvin said when it refers here in verse 26 to all Israel, it means spiritual Israel. It's just a reference to the church, meaning Jews and Gentiles alike. But if you look carefully at this passage, there's no way you can buy that. Because I count at least... 11 times that Paul uses the name Israel in chapters 9 to 11, and every time he's referring to the Jews in contrast to the Gentiles. In fact, it's used right here in verse 25. Notice the end of verse 25. A partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, and thus all Israel will be saved. So whoever is being hardened in verse 25 is being saved in verse 26. And who is that? That's the nation of Israel in contrast to the nations of the Gentiles. Others have said the reference here to all Israel is the sum total of all the Jewish remnants over all the ages. So the application would be God just takes and He adds up all the Jews who have ever believed in Jesus Christ, and that is all Israel in this case. Now, I can't buy that either because it misses the context. Because the context is he's talking here about an olive tree. 
And he's tracing the history of God's workings with man. Israel was once in that place of privilege. They have been cut off. The Gentiles are now in that place of privilege. And Paul says, don't be arrogant because things could change and Israel could be brought back in. He says in verse 23, it's possible. He says in verse 24, it's easy. And then coming to verse 25, does he say it's already happened by God adding up the little numbers of Jews who have been saved over the years? No. You see, that's anticlimactic. And if that's what Paul is saying, then we have some verses here that don't make any sense. Because if you go back to verse 12, he says, Now if their transgression be riches for the world, and their failure be riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their fulfillment be? He's looking to the future. And then look with me at verse 15. He says, for if their, that's Israel, if their rejection be the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? And again, he's looking to the future. The same way they were rejected as a nation, they will be accepted as a nation. And then perhaps the strongest argument against this position is in verse 25. Because if you look in verse 25, Paul says, this is a mystery. Now, a mystery in the Bible is something that you would never come to figure out on your own, but God has to reveal to us. Now, the gradual conversion of a little number of Jews over the centuries is not a mystery. What is the mystery? The mystery is that a partial hardening has happened to Israel. They have been hardened, and it's partial. That's why it says some of the branches have been broken off. And it's going to be that way until the fullness of the Gentiles is come in. It's only temporary. And then all Israel will be saved. You see, the mystery here, get a hold of it, the mystery is the future salvation of Israel. You say, well, is that idea taught in other scriptures? Well, look with me for a moment at Zechariah chapter 12. Zechariah chapter 12. Larry quoted a couple of these verses. Zechariah chapter 12. And verse 10. God says, I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the Spirit of grace. God's going to pour out His Spirit of grace on who? On the house of Israel and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the spirit of grace and of supplication so that they will look on me whom they have pierced and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son and they will weep bitterly over him, the bitter weeping over a firstborn. In that day, there will be great mourning in Jerusalem. Now, it says in that day. When is that day? Well, it's after the cross because they're mourning over the fact that they have crucified their Messiah. And then if you slide down to chapter 13 and verse 1, it continues that thought. It says, in that day, the same day, a fountain will be opened for the house of David and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for impurity. What's that? A cleansing for Israel. Salvation for Israel in that same day. You say, when is that day? Look at chapter 14 and verse 4. In that day, His feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in front of Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives will be split in the middle from east to west. It's a day after the cross. It's a day 
in the same day when Jesus is coming back. So he's talking here about the last days. Israel is going to be saved. When you look in the book of Revelation, you find this recorded for us in what's described as a seven-year tribulation period. And in Revelation chapter 7, it describes 144,000 Jewish servants of the Lamb. 144,000 Jewish evangelists going out into the world talking about who? Jesus Christ being the Messiah and the Son of God. That's an exciting time. And if you'll take the time to read Revelation chapter 14 and verse 4, it describes this 144,000 and it says they are just the first fruits. They are just the first fruits of Israel because the promise will be realized in that time period because all Israel will be saved. You say, well, when's that going to happen? Come back to Revelation or, or Romans chapter 11 because he says in verse 25, it's going to happen when the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Israel is, a, is in a condition of partial hardening now until this point in time when the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Now, what's the fullness of the Gentiles? Well, that's when the full number of believing Gentiles is arrived at. God only knows what that number is. When every Gentile believer who is going to, be, going to believe believes, that will be the fullness of the Gentiles. And at that point in time, God's going to switch his attention to Israel, and all Israel will be saved. I think it's logical at that same point in time to conclude that what's described in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and other places, the rapture of the church will take place. When the fullness of the Gentiles is realized, the church will be raptured out of this world and in the tribulation period, God is going to focus on Israel and in that period of time described in Revelation, all Israel will be saved. You say, well, why would God bring salvation to stubborn, rebellious Israel? Well, the answer is right here in verses 26 and 27. Quoting from Isaiah 59, Paul says, The Deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. There's only one reason that God's going to save Israel. And it's given right in this passage, and that is God's covenant. God gave His Word, and God is going to keep it. God promised to save Israel, and He will do it. And so in a future day, we know that all Israel will be saved because God has promised that He will do it. Which brings us to the fourth point, and that is God's perspective in verses 28 to 32. You know, perspective is important because where you stand and how you look at something determines what you see. And Paul points out here that there are two standpoints, two perspectives by which we can look at Israel. The first, in verse 28, he says, From the standpoint of the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. From the standpoint of the gospel, as we look at Israel today, they are enemies of God. Have you tried to share the gospel with a Jewish person today? Most are openly antagonistic 
to the very name of Jesus Christ. And so he says, from the standpoint of the gospel, they're enemies for our sake. What's he mean by that? Well, he told us back in verse 11, he said there, but by their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles. They're antagonistic. They spurned the invitation. We got a blessing because of that. And so as we look at Jews today from the standpoint of the gospel, they're enemies of God. But then he gives a second perspective at the end of verse 28. He says, but from the standpoint of God's choice, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. From the standpoint of God's choice. Now, he's not talking there about God's choice of individual believers. He's talking about God's choice of Israel as a nation. In Deuteronomy 7, 6, it says, The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his own possession out of all of the peoples who are on the face of the earth. God chose Israel. And even though they are enemies in reference to the gospel today, from the standpoint of God's choice, they are the beloved of God. Why? For the sake of the fathers. The holy root of the olive tree. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the ones to whom the promises were given. And so perspective is very important. Looking at Israel through our eyes, they're enemies of the gospel. Looking at Israel through God's word, they are his beloved, and they will one day be saved. Now let me add a footnote here. Paul is not saying that Israel will one day be saved apart from the gospel. Everyone who has ever been saved and ever will be saved is saved on the basis of the gospel. But what he's saying is the gospel that they now reject, they will one day embrace. And his confidence about this is expressed by the principle he states in verse 29. He says, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. What are the gifts that God has given to Israel? He already described them in chapter 9 and verse 4 and 5. Adoption as sons, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the promises, the fathers, the Messiah according to the flesh. God gave them those gifts and God gave them the calling. That's the act by which God called and chose Israel to be his people. See, what he's saying is that when God gives a gift, he can't take it back. And when God makes a promise, He can't retract it. That's the nature of our God. And then in verses 30 to 32, Paul summarizes God's perspective on all men. Notice verse 30. For just as you once were disobedient to God, but now have been shown mercy because of their disobedience, so these also now have been disobedient in order that because of the mercy shown to you, they also may now be shown mercy. Now let's try to understand that. What he's saying is, we the Gentiles were once disobedient to God. We were once the enemies of God. But we have been shown mercy because of Israel's unbelief. Israel, on the other hand, is presently in a state of disobedience. But Paul says, because of the mercy shown to us, the Gentiles, culminating in the fullness of the Gentiles, they will one day receive mercy as well. You see, what he's saying is, though we don't really see it from God's perspective, we are actually helping each other. 
If the Jews had initially accepted the invitation and believed, we the Gentiles would have been left out. And if the Jews had initially accepted the invitation and believed, they would have only experienced God's faithfulness. But as it is, notice what he says in verse 32. For God has shut up all in disobedience that he might show mercy to all. Jews and Gentiles alike are all under disobedience so that what? So that we might receive God's mercy. See, verse 32 spells out the prerequisite for receiving mercy. You know what it is? You have to be disobedient. You have to be rebellious. You have to be helpless and hopeless, deserving of judgment and wrath. If anybody here today stands up and gives a testimony that they have experienced the mercy of God, that testimony has to start with the fact that you have been shut up under disobedience, confined and condemned in your sin. And Paul says that's the condition we all find ourselves in, Gentile and Jew alike, so that God might show us all mercy. And that's the beauty of mercy. Mercy, by its very nature, only comes to people who don't deserve it. You know, in Luke chapter 18, Jesus told us a story about two men who prayed two prayers from two perspectives. One guy was a Pharisee. Remember his prayer? His prayer was, God, thank you that I'm not like other people. Now, what was his perspective? His perspective is, I'm doing great. And I think God is just as proud of me as I am of myself. And so he goes with that attitude to prayer. Where does that perspective get him? His prayer doesn't even get past the ceiling. In fact, Jesus, interestingly enough, if you read that, Jesus said he prayed to himself. See, he was praying to his God himself. But meanwhile, there was another guy, a tax collector, in the temple at the same time. You remember his prayer? God, be merciful to me, the sinner. He starts out with God. He ends up with me, the sinner. What's his perspective? Jesus says he wasn't even willing to lift up his eyes to heaven. He was beating on his chest. He was saying, I don't deserve anything. I'm just me, the sinner. And with that attitude, he had one, one prayer request and only one prayer request, and that was, be merciful. Where does that perspective get you? Jesus said that man went to his house justified rather than the other. You see, that's the nature of mercy. It comes to those who realize they don't deserve it. The more you study about mercy, the more you try to understand God's mercy, the more you realize it's not logical. It's not rational. It doesn't make any sense. You can't get your calculator out and add up mercy. Because when you add it up, our disobedience should lead to judgment and wrath and hell. Instead, our disobedience leads us to the cross of Jesus Christ where we find salvation and forgiveness and eternal life. Why? God's mercy. Which leads us to the fifth point, and that is God's praise 
in verses 33 to 36. And here Paul closes out this chapter by just bursting into a doxology of praise, which is really an expression of the end of God's plan, and that is that God be glorified. Now, if you're like me, you come to a passage like verses 33 to 36, and you say, well, I'll just skim over that because I want to get to chapter 12 because I know that's the practical part of the book of Romans. So we don't, we don't really want to spend the time looking at the details in these verses as Paul contemplates the excellencies of God. But you see, that's a big mistake when we do that. One of the most profound books I ever read is a little book. It's probably profound because I read it early on in my Christian experience. It's a little book written by A.W. Tozer called The Knowledge of the Holy. And he starts out that book with these words. He says, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes into my mind when I think about God is the most important thing about me. What do you think about God? And then he goes on to explain that because he says there's a principle that works in all of us and that principle is that we move toward our mental image of God. If you've got a low image of God, you're going to be moving toward that low image. If you've got a high image of God, you're going to be moving toward that high image of God. What you think about God is the most important thing about you. And so we can't really jump to chapter 12 and the practical part and we'll, until we get a true image of who God is. And that's why when you look at chapter 12, Paul says there, I urge you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God. You see, the practical motive or the motive for our practical Christian living is God's nature, God's character, God's mercies. We need to contemplate who God is and what God has done for us. And then our lifestyle is just an expression of our worship to Him. And so verses 33 to 36 is very important as Paul contemplates the person of God. And that sounds good, thinking about God, but we have a problem when it comes to thinking about God. And that is it's not easy. It's not easy to think about God. And the reason is we have two things that kind of hold us up. One is, if we're going to think about God, we have to stop thinking about ourselves. And that's a big hurdle. What was the song, I Want to Talk About Me? That's our theme song. So if I'm going to think about God, I've got to stop thinking about me. I've got a hurdle to get over to do that. And then there's a second problem, and that is, God isn't like me. God is different from me. When I start thinking about God, He surprises me because He's beyond me. And He stretches the capacity of my mind to try to understand. You know, I was thinking about my Christian experience. In my Christian experience, when I was first saved, I used a lot of similes when I talked about God. I would say, well, I think God is like this or, or God is like that. But you know what? The more you grow as a Christian the more you stop using similes because you realize that God isn't like anything or anyone. And instead, you say what Paul says in verse 33, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and unfathomable His ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who became His counselor? 
Paul says, when I think about God, He's too deep, He's unsearchable, He's unfathomable. And what specifically does he say is unfathomable? He says it's God's wisdom, knowledge, judgments, ways, and mind. And in this context, he's talking specifically, he's focusing specifically on God's wisdom, knowledge, judgment, ways, and mind in relation to his mercy. Let me have you turn back to the minor prophets one more time. Go back to the book of Micah. Micah's name means, who is like God? And Micah lived in a day when Israel was rebellious. They were evil. They were doing their own thing. And so most of his book is designed to pronounce judgment on Israel if they don't repent, and they wouldn't repent. And so he spends this whole book talking about the judgment of God to come. And then at the end of his prophecy in chapter 7... He finally asked the question that his name conveys. In verse 18, he says, Who is a God like you? And then his answer parallels Paul's in Romans chapter 11. Notice what he says. Who is a God like you who pardons iniquity and passes over the rebellious acts of the remnant of his possession? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in unchanging love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. Yes, you will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will give truth to Jacob and unchanging love to Abraham, which you did swear to our forefathers from the days of old. Who is like God? Nobody. Aren't you glad God isn't like us? If God were like us, He never would have shown mercy in the first place. If God was like us, even if He did show mercy in the first place, He would lose His patience over time and say, that's it. But we worship a God who's not like us. He is unfathomable. His mercy is unsearchable. It's too deep. We can't get there. One of the things that confirms to me the truth of the gospel more than anything else is that I realize left to ourselves, no man would ever come up with the plan of the gospel. Because it's God's plan. It's based in His grace and His mercy, which we can't even begin to fathom in our natural minds. We can't understand. We can just stand back in awe and worship. And then he adds in verse 35, Or who has first given to God that it might be paid back to him again? Can anybody here stand up and say, God owed me salvation? Can anybody stand up here today and say my salvation was just a payback? No. See, salvation is not a give and take. Salvation is not a trade-off. The only thing God took from you was your sin. God doesn't owe us anything. Salvation is all mercy. And then verse 36, for from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. 
from him, through him, to him. That pretty well covers it all. From him, he's the source of all things. Through him, he's the means of all things. And to him, he's the end of all things. From him, he planned it all. Through him, he did it all. To him, he gets all the glory. Now, if it's from him and through him and to him, what did you and I do? Nothing. And what credit do we get? None. We are left with one and only one response. And that's Paul's response as he closes this chapter. He says, to him be the glory forever. Amen. That is the conclusion of God's redemptive plan. And he wants to hear that from every one of us. He wants to hear that from our hearts and from our lives and from our lips. You know, there are a lot of buzzwords today. In fact, the phrase buzzword is a buzzword. But, but you hear all these buzzwords today like Reaganomics and sound bites and the bottom line and I'm bullish and I'm bearish and I'm market driven. All these buzzwords. You know, my favorite buzzword is paradigm shift. A paradigm is a complete model or pattern. And so a paradigm shift is a total, a total reordering of how one looks at and evaluates something. For the countries of Eastern Europe that were communist and are now capitalist, that was a paradigm shift. But I want to suggest to you this morning that the people who should have the greatest paradigm shift are believers. Because the Holy Spirit comes in and He makes a paradigm shift in my life from the worship of me to the worship of God. Let me ask you a trivia question. What was the last song recorded by the Beatles before their breakup in the 70s? If you know the answer, I'm worried about you. You know what their last song was? I, me, mine. That was their last song, but that is the first, last, and only song that my unregenerate heart sings. I, me, mine. But in stark contrast, the song of the redeemed is Romans eleven thirty six. To Him be the glory forever. Amen. I'm going to ask you to stand as we close today. And we're going to express that worship to the Lord. We're going to celebrate the fact that there is no answer to the question, who is like God? I'm going to have the praise team come. They're going to lead us in a very celebratory song, actually, but this is a celebration because we have something to get excited about this morning. We have a God of mercy that we can't even comprehend. We have a God who, by His Spirit, comes into our lives and makes a paradigm shift so that we no longer have to worship ourselves and live for ourselves. We can worship and praise Him alone. Let's do that as we close. If God has spoken to your heart, you can come forward as we sing. I'm going to ask those who are baptized to come as well. Let's praise the Lord.